2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial. When I looked at my role as an adversary, in my mind, those guys are getting ready to go overseas, and I wanted them to be the absolute sharpest they can be, so that if for some reason they end up in a shooting war with whoever, I want them to have the confidence that they know how their adversaries are going to perform in real world. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and joining me in studio today is Jack Stewart. Jack, how you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm in sunny San Diego. Get to sit down and talk with you about fighter jets, so I'm doing awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, we're going to talk about Top Gun and a whole bunch of cool stuff, and you go by Farley. I go by Farley. All yeah, right. I have since I was a wee J.O. back in BF-87. <laughs> well, let's hear about that. Where'd you get your start? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Tell us about your military career and maybe a little bit about what you're doing now. Well, uh, see, I grew up in a suburb of Seattle, Washington. Grew up in an aviation family. My uh, mom's dad was a B-17 pilot in World War II. My dad was a private pilot his entire life, got his license at age 16. So I grew up going to air shows and hanging out at the FBO and going for airplane rides with my dad before I could even see over the dash. But it was a surprise to them when I told them I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. I just read an article in Boys Life magazine about King Hall where all 4,000 midshipmen eat at once. And I just one day when I was eight years old said, mom and dad, I'm going to the Naval Academy. And they're like, what? You're doing what? (laughs) So sure enough, I wrote to the Naval Academy every single year from age eight until finally they sent back an application instead of a, hey, you're too young to apply. Mm -hmm. And that's where I went, went to the Naval Academy four years there and uh, graduated in 1999, selected for Navy pilot, went to the Navy pilot training program, Pensacola, Corpus Christi, Kingsville, Texas and ended up in F-18s and did a couple tours with VF-87, VF-82, and then eventually transitioned to the reserves. That's where I finished out. Now, but don't be too modest. You must have done well in high school because I also applied to the Naval Academy. I got a different letter than you got, which was, thanks but no thanks, punk. Uh, So you must have done pretty well. I mean, that's a competitive place to get in. It is, and you know, when you're eight and you decide that's where you're gonna go, maybe my sole focus on everything I did was, what do I need to do to get in the Naval Academy? So it said I needed to be an athlete. So I was like, well, I guess I better start doing something. So I started running, started swimming, and uh, was a varsity athlete. 
I said student government, so I ran for every office I could. I needed to have good grades, so I studied hard and, you know, just test scores. Test scores. Yeah. yeah, I just did everything I could to get in. It was just my sole focus. And then uh, did you have any flight experience when you went to flight school? I did. You so, talked about seeing over the dash and all that. But. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when I was a senior in high school, my parents offered to say, hey, you can either join this swim team or we'll pay for you to get your license. And um, at the time, you know, being 17, 18 years old, I said, oh, I want to be a swimmer. So I, I said, I'm going to join the swim team. And it's the worst decision I ever made. <laughs> but when I came back after my plebe year at the Naval Academy, my parents, I guess, realized that maybe I made a mistake and they offered me, hey, do you want to get your license? So I spent a summer got my private license, flew every single day. And and people who haven't been to Seattle might think that it's always rainy. Well, in the summertime, and that summer was beautiful. I mean, not a cloud in the sky. Flew every day and uh, went back to the Naval Academy with my license, joined the flying team. Basically, it was just an excuse for the Navy to pick up my flying tab. But uh, yeah, I had about 200 hours before I started Navy flight training. Because I've had a couple guests on the show lately that had various levels of experience, and they said it really helped them through primary, about the time intermediates and advanced, yeah. that uh, everybody kind of catches up. But at least your stomach's used to it. Right. And you know what to do when you click the radio mic and exactly. talk and VFR and some of the VMC rules and all that. Yeah. Cool. I'd say it helped with the first couple weeks in primary flight training. After that, yeah. it was level playing field. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, well, hold on. At one point in your career, though, you must have gone out to Fallon because I wore the shirt special for today. Now, I went through and spent some years there, and uh, this logo on my chest here uh, shows the patch I wore. The patch you wore looked a little different. Yeah, so uh, I was one of the few that got the white rocker underneath it that said adversary. And it came a little bit later in my career. So normally, after your first sea tour, you're going to get chosen to be at the weapons school or on staff at Top Gun Mm -hmm. or a few other billets around the Navy, and you go through the course as a fighter. As an adversary, I went to I did a little bit later in my life, we'll say. So after my first sea tour, I went and was an instructor down in Kingsville in the T-45. And then from there, I did an admiral's aid job in New Orleans with the Navy Reserve Forces Admiral. And that's about the time when they said, hey, you know, the reserves have hornets too. And there happened to be a squadron in New Orleans. And the admiral was a very good guy and said, hey, I want you to get back into flying. So I'm going to send you out to Lemoore send you through other syllabus to get you current again in the F-18, and then you can fly with VFA-204 as a guest pilot. So I did that for my year as an admiral's aide. It was pretty awesome because I'd have the squadron call me and say, hey, what are you doing today? <laughs> Not much. Let me go talk to the admiral. And Hey, admiral, they want me to go fly. He said, okay, bye, Jack. See you later. So so I got to go fly with VFA-204, went to Alaska with them to do a northern edge exercise yeah. as a guest pilot. And uh, it, was, it was just a great time. And so when it became a uh, time for me to leave the Admiral's aid job. I applied to be FTS. It's called TAR now. It used to be TAR before That's it was right. FTS, but uh, basically active duty reservist. So I, I got picked up for that and joined 204 as a full-time reservist. Okay. And that was a time when I went to Top Gun and, and got to get my adversary patch. Are you still full-time reserve or are you? No, I'm retired now. Okay. Yeah, I retired last year. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you, what else are you doing? You're doing a little writing, which we'll talk about here. Yeah, that. yeah. But, uh, what else are you doing? Yeah, so I was a full-time reservist for a couple years. Uh, I did a deployment to Afghanistan as a JTAC with a tactical wow. air control party. And uh, when I got back from that, I decided it was time for me to leave the Navy full-time. So that's when I became a selected reservist, so a part-time mm-hmm. reservist with 204. Kind of stiff-armed the whole airline thing for a couple of years. I didn't want to fly a bus after flying, you know, fighters for so long. So I went into business, realized I didn't like working for a living. So I, I decided to go back into <laughs> aviation, and so I became an airline pilot. So that's I do. That's my full-time job now. 
you know, as you probably well know, being an airline pilot, you do have a lot of downtime. And so I decided I wanted to start writing books. So sure. full-time airline pilot, part-time writer, maybe full-time writer eventually. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll talk about your first book here at the end. But I want to get back to this idea of uh, patches can look a little different. There's another one with the rocker, as you call that, that says controller. And maybe that's a different day. But you went through the adversary course. So yes. if you and I had gone through together, we might have gone through at the same time, but we'd almost be on different sides of the equation, right? right. So describe that a little bit. What, what is the adversary course and how does it differ from the usual? And we've talked about it here on this show before, the uh, strike fighter tactics instructor would be like the normal, not normal, I shouldn't say, but the, the usual, if you will, top gun patch. Yes. So you mentioned the controller. That's the other one. Mm-hmm. That's, so you have all three groups going through a class at the same time and everyone has a different job to do. So in the BFM phase, so when we were doing just 1v1, 2v1 dogfighting, uh, it's exactly the same. So the fighters and the adversaries are going to do the briefing labs. They're going to go out and do the sorties, basically with the emphasis on how to be an instructor, right? So you as a blue patch wearer is going to be the same as me as a red patch wearer and how we're going to instruct BFM. It's just when we do it and how we do it once you know we're graduates is a little bit different. So most adversary instructors, like myself, would teach RAG students how to BFM. So we go down to Key West a lot when VFA 106 would come down there and do 1v1 or 2v1 with them. Once the BFM phase was over, the rest of it, that's when you said we're on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. So as an adversary student, uh, I would be in charge of all the red air, all the bad guys for an event. So uh, it's broken up into two phases, the two-ship phase, uh, the section fighter phase, and then the four-ship or division. And each mission is going to have a different objective. And so I would know, okay, for this mission, uh, they're looking for threat replications of this type of aircraft. Because there's a scenario. There's an absolute scenario, yeah. yeah. So uh, whether it be a self-escort strike where you've got two uh, fighters that are going to try to ingress to a target, fight their way in, drop their bombs and egress, or whether it's a sweep uh, where they're going to clear out any kind of hostile aircraft before a strike element behind them. It's a very crawl, walk, run mentality. And so every it's kind of funny going through as an adversary because we would develop the game plan that the fighters would then have to counter. And at least in my class, we like to you know give our fighter buds a little bit of a Heads up. So I would put my my game plan <laughs> kneeboard card in my box in the lounge, and uh. and they knew it was there. But more importantly, every day, because the, the adversary would do the mass brief, he would ask questions of the day, and he would pick somebody to say, tell me about whatever the threat of the day was. Right. Whatever because the, there's some sort of envelope maybe you want to memorize yeah, and be able to recite. Right. It's like the SAN-6, for example. You want to know what ships are carried on, whatever. And so I would put down what fighter I was going to ask that question. <laughs> and uh, I remember one day I, I, I had the kneeboard card in my box. I had the game plan there for them. I had the questions of the day. And uh, I called on the guy I said I was going to call on. And he obviously wasn't prepared because uh, as he's answering it, he's looking at his hand where he'd written the answers. And in the back of the room, you could see all the, all the Top Gun bros like click their pens and start writing notes. So um, yeah. it doesn't always work out. But yeah, uh, but yeah so we, we progressed through as a class just with the red air on one side and the blue on the other. 
so if Hollywood had a chance at this, right, the, the, you just totally dashed their dreams because they would want, I would think, you know, a lot of conflict between, like, again, if you and I were going through together, you're like, Farley, you know, I can't believe you did that scenario, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, right, bros help each other out. Yeah. And that's just a term regardless of gender. But And the idea is that you've got a side of it to do and the blue has a side to do. And you said, by the way, blue patch and red patch. The colors aren't different, but right. the point being we have blue air, which are the good guys, if you, in a sense, doing the tactics that we use, and then you're simulating the other side. Now, why do we need, and, and you and I know this well, but for those who maybe don't, why do we need professional, quote unquote, adversaries anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the answer to that is, when I looked at my role as an adversary, and when I would do training after I went to the course, and I was uh, I would go out, let's say, out to San Diego, out here to San Diego, and support um, a Comp2X, where there's a air wing on a carrier. And in my mind, those guys are getting ready to go do what I used to do. They're getting ready to go overseas and be at the tip of the spear. And I wanted them to be the absolute sharpest they can be. So that if for some reason they end up in a shooting war with whoever, China, North Korea, Russia, whoever, I want them to have the confidence that they know how their adversaries are going to perform in real world. So I took my job very seriously, and I think that's why we need to have professional adversaries or aggressors in the Air Force, is we need to have somebody that looks into the latest intelligence of how our threat nations, how our adversaries are training, how they're fighting, and then give our fighters the best chance of success if it ends up into a shooting war. No, I think that's exactly it, right, is we assess the other side, and we say, how do we think they're going to do it? And what limitations maybe do they have based on aircraft or rules or whatever? And then we want to simulate that right. the best we can because our blue tactics are based on what we know about them. And if our blue guys are doing their job right, you as a red air pilot might get quote unquote killed, right? In training, obviously it's it's all simulated, but right. is there a pride issue there for you? I mean, a little bit. It, yeah, Are yeah. You, does that hurt after a while? It, it, it does <laughs> initially, you know, initially when you're, when you're uh, if you're doing the big exercise and you see a fighter and you roll in on them, uh, you're like, yes, you know, it's, I'm gonna, fun. it's fun. Like yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna slay this guy. But And then when they kill me, I'm like, wait a second, that shouldn't happen. But at the same time, I you know, remembering the big picture, I want them to kill me, That's right. right? I want them to be good enough to beat me and not to get slayed in the real world, yeah, so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I did a handful of Red Air, uh, in fact, I did probably mostly Red Air when I was on the Top Gun staff 2000 to 2002. And I got to the point where I almost got bummed out when I killed a fighter or yes. been behind them. Yeah. Because you know something broke down, yes. right? So they didn't do something right or I was unobserved or something happened and yeah, it's a real bummer in the debrief when Showtime 1-3 is killed and now there's, you know, right? Because these are, like you said, these are people that are in our squadrons and if the balloon goes up someday and this really happens, there could be some yeah. fatalities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There, I definitely remember there were times when I would go into the debrief feeling so bad for, you know, whoever the student yeah. was and I'm like, man, I just wish he had got me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in the, to your point, in the moment, it's kind of fun right. because this is what we do as aviators. Now, you said something else I'd been wanting to ask. I don't know the answer to this. Maybe, hopefully, you do. Adversaries, aggressors, are those just happy, glad? Are they the same thing or are they yeah, different? they're basically the same thing. So Navy and Marine Corps uh, refer to them as adversaries. Air Force refers to them as aggressors. Okay. But it's semantics, really. Uh, they mean the exact same thing. I do know, if you were to talk to an Air Force guy and 
you would ask him if he'd done any adversary, he he would say, oh yeah, because even though there's not a professional aggressor, they maybe will go out and augment to be red air for an in-house training event or for another unit. And so that's kind of how they they view being red air, but not professional red air, not being a full-time red air. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me of, for example, when I was a junior officer in VFA 86, we were in the same air wing as 82, by the way. We might go out and do, again, red air for 82, or we might even have four of our own and two on each side, and we might even alternate. Right. Hey, on runs one and three, it will be the good guys. On runs two and four, it will be the bad guys. And you have the special instructions so everybody knows, again, the what threat are we pretending to be? What capability do they have? Are they somewhat defensive and maybe a little bit, I don't know, not shy, but I don't know what else to call it, but not as aggressive? Or are they really out to, you know, get you kind of thing? So all that factors into the way that the red air is flown. Exactly. Yeah. In the very beginning of any, whether it's uh, the Top Gun course or whether it be Air Wing Fallon or the Strike Fighter Advanced Radiance Program, the very first few sorties are going to be very benign where you've got an adversary or a threat that is not proficient and is going to be kind of should be a, like a clubbing a baby seal for the fighters, you know. Which, right, is probably effectively what we've seen for the last 20 years in our mainly air-to-ground focus on the former war on terror, whatever they're calling it now. But as we pivot to Asia, whatever the buzzword or expression is for now, yeah, there are some countries out there with some very formidable threats, and not only the aircraft, but the training and the proficiency and all that. So we need to be on our game. So let's talk about the Top Gun Adversary course. So let's start at the beginning. How did you apply or, or were you an applicant or were you did someone come to you and say, hey, we'd like you to come or how does that part of it work? Well, when you're in an adversary squadron, they pick and choose who from that squadron is going to go through the adversary course. The idea being if you're not a blue patch wearer or just like the patch that you wear as a fighter uh, and already an SFTI, because we had a lot of people come to the squadron that were from the weapons school or from the Top Gun staff. If you weren't already a patch wearer, they had billets that so you could go through the course as an adversary. So when I joined, I went through a one-year training in-house syllabus to be trained up in BFM and all the to be a adversary wingman. And then once I finished that, then they sent me to Top Gun to go through the adversary course. And like I alluded to earlier, it starts off the same with the BFM phase, and then you work into the two ship and four ship as red air, and it, it culminates with a, a large exercise where basically all the adversaries are going against all the fighters all at once and they throw up a bunch of planes and it's really more or less for fun. You usually have family in town right before the patching and they can watch it on the big screen. But when you uh, when you finish that as an adversary, you become what they call a level, level four adversary instructor now, which meant that I would go back to the squadron and I'd be the person that would be training all the other guys, all the other patch wearers included on what the latest tactics are for our threat replications. Now, VFA-204 at the time was flying the F-18. I think it's now VFC-204 it and it's flying yeah. F-5s. But you went through in the F-18. What did you go to Top Gun and fly? Well, so our squadron provided two jets. But the um, F-18s, F-18, right? F-18, But yep. wasn't that what your blue, like, again, if you and I were there mm-hmm. at the same time, yeah. I would be flying an F-18. Right, right. Okay, how does that work? They just said, hey, for this uh, mission, you're going to be uh, replicating this type of platform, which meant that I might be mill limited. I couldn't go afterburner. It meant that I had to use my radar a certain way. It meant that I couldn't pull more than X number of Gs. So I would have to, each sortie, I would have to fly based on the exact threat I was replicating for that sortie. But uh, I jumped in. It was NSOC at the time. Now it's Nautic. Uh, I would jump in their jets. 
So it, it didn't really matter. A through D model, I think I flew. I flew all of them during the during the class, which is funny. I'm sure you know this, but the you know the A model, not the A plus, because we had the A plus at 204 when I went through. When I retired, we were flying the C model, but the A model it didn't have uh, AIM-120 capability, and so when you would try to select AIM-120 with the weapon select switch, that wouldn't the switch wouldn't move. There were several times where I was flying a NSOC A, and I was like, "Why is it not moving? I can't select AIM-120." <laughs> but otherwise, they're they're the same. We just fly them differently. Yeah, but you make a great point, which is right. An FA-18 is capable of so much, and maybe if you're simulating a MiG-23, well, it might go faster than an F-18, so your handcuffs, if you will, for that day might be as fast as you can go, but a MiG-23 can't pull as many Gs, so you might get seven Gs for the first 90 degrees of turn, and then you're allowed to like maybe, I don't know, 10% of your speed or something. But that's the point that I was getting from you at the beginning, and you did a good job explaining, is that's why there's professional adversaries, because if you just go out and fly the F-18, then me on the blue side, might not get as good a training versus if I see you really arcing, which we'd call if it didn't pull good Gs, then I might have to do a different, not have to, but I might choose to do a different maneuver in order to shoot you in the, in the within visual range, which would be different than if you were just a full up F-18. Uh, which is the cool thing about having different platforms doing the adversary role. You know, I think the Navy adversary has shrunk considerably. I mean, back in the 80s, it was a lot different. I mean, Air Force included, the Air Force... If you if you remember, they declassified this program, Constant Peg, that was at Tonopah, and they were flying MiG-17s, MiG-19s, MiG-23s, and Air Force pilots were going to fly against actual MiGs, right? That's pretty cool. Well, we don't have that today. But th- at the time, the Navy, there were uh, there were adversary squadrons in Virginia Beach flying the Kafir. They were flying A-4s, all different types of platforms. And now we got to the point where it was just F-5 and F-18. That was it. Like you said, 204, VFA 204 is now VFC 204 flying the F-5. And you, you would think, well, that, you know, you're going from the F-18 to the F-5. That's kind of a step back. But VFC 13 and Fallon uh, stepped up to the F-16. I've fought against a lot of F-16s in the fleet, Air Force F-16s. And I'm I'm humble person by nature. But I will say I, I crushed every single one of them that I fought against. But I went through the course, and I fought a Top Gun instructor flying an F-16 who fought it totally different, and I got crushed. So it's really good to see different platforms and how they perform, whether it be flown by a pilot you know, differently or whether it be because they're replicating a different threat aircraft. That difference is what we need to see yeah. more of, I think. No, I agree. And right now, I think the Navy and Marine Corps is limited to, like you said, the F-16 and the F-5, as well as the F-18. And once in a while, like VFC-12, they'll paint their jets, their Hornets, Super Hornets now, a different color with some camouflage or try to make them look like maybe a Russian or a Chinese aircraft, just so at least in the visual arena, it looks a little different maybe. But otherwise, yeah, like like you said, if you fly it a certain way, then uh, it's an F-18, it's an F-18. But yeah, I had a chance to fly the F-16 at the end of my career. And uh, one thing that it could do that the Hornet couldn't is uh, go fast quickly. And I was, uh, I remember one particular flight, I was doing Mach 1.93, and I ate up the entire Fallon Range training complex before I knew it, I was on the other side. And of course, when things happen that quickly, you know, the the blue fighters aren't used to that if they only train against F-5s or F-18s. So everything happens really fast. And so that's a real eye-opener for them. But to your point, I think the Air Force is starting to have some F-35 aggressors, I guess, in there. But I think they're early production, so they weren't really combat capable anyway. They've got F-16s. I think they have some F-15. Yeah, I mean, the whole landscape is changing now, and the aggressors in the Air Force and 
adversary of the Navy. And I know that the Navy is viewing the F-5 at least at VFC-204. They're viewing it as a stopgap because of the strike fighter shortfall, whether they're waiting for the F-35 to come online. What they're going to get in the future, whether it be a high-lot Super Hornet or a low-lot F-35, I don't, I don't know. That remains to be seen. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it has to change. Give me an example of, no kidding, what you might do as a red lead at a Top Gun. Let's say it's the division phase, or maybe a couple weeks from graduation, and I am, so let's just give a scenario here. So I'm gonna lead the division, so four F-18s, okay. and, you, and I'm gonna come in and pick a fight in your country, so you're on a DCA, defensive counter air, and I'm on OCA. Now, I, as part of my syllabus, might have certain things I want to train to. And we'll keep it simple. So let's rule out like electronic attack or anything like that. But if you're just looking to defend the motherland from the Yankee imperialists like me, give me an idea of what sort of presentation you might come up with. Yeah, so um, that, that's a very standard one, right? Yeah. And, and what they would usually do for these scenarios, they would designate certain places that were airfields, enemy airfields. Usually one of them is Fallon. And we'll usually keep red air on the ground, no kidding, on the ground uh, to be a strip alert. So maybe once the fighters, once you cross a certain line, I'm going to go ahead and launch those guys and they're going to run you down, right? So you're looking at your radar and you're not seeing those guys because they're actually on the ground. So then we would have other people that are capping at uh, the other locations, doing a kind of a defensive patrol where they're just flowing into the threat sector and then flowing cold, and they're waiting for you to trip up yeah, the desired commit out. line, yeah. right? And then uh, a lot of times we would use the F-5s to do what we called a coastal patrol, where they might simulate flying up and down a coast, low altitude. And, and it's testing a few things. For one, the fighters looking to make sure they're sanitizing low and looking for those aircraft that might be down in the weeds. And also a visual lookout, because we might send one, one F-5 to follow the fighters out to cap uncalled, and then he would sneak into their formations to make sure that they're still looking outside the canopy and, and, and looking for a threat out there. And you know, if they called it, we'd terminate that guy and, and say, okay, training objective met. And then we'd look to make sure that they uh, would target the coastal patrol guys. And then once once you come past the desired commit line and you're, you reach uh, maybe 10 miles from feet dry, then we would start sending guys from, from the caps out to challenge you, look to have you split apart your forces, see if we can maybe overload one sector over another, you know, maybe put a lot of guys on one side of the formation and not somebody in the other to see how you handle it. And yeah, everything you, like you said, everything is based on your training objectives. Yeah. You know, whatever your training objectives are, we want to meet those. And, but we want to give you a challenging presentation, something that's going to make you think on the fly, something right. that's going to make you adapt to the evolving situation. But everything is definitely, it's winnable, right? You're never going to be put into a no-win situation. And so uh, usually we would fly what we would call double cycle. So we would do red air for one wave of fighters, reach the logical conclusion of that. Once the training objectives have been met, then those fighters would go home another set of fighters would come out, and then we would set up and do the exact same thing. And you talked about having strip alerts, as you could put it, in Fallon. Now, everybody's originating from Fallon, so just to make the point for the listeners and viewers, the blue forces might take off first, go all the way out, what, 120 miles east, set up out by uh, the Ruby Mountains or whatever it is out there, and then, uh, and then when everybody's ready and we have all the protocols for, okay, fighter set, bandit set, here we go, then the fight is on, like you said, and then you knock it off. And the blue, generally speaking, runs out of gas 
first because they're using that left hand. Right. They want to get the best training, not necessarily save gas. Right. So the bandits may or may not do that. Yeah. And so you can have a couple waves there. But the other thing is, right, if the scenario was reversed and I was doing a DCA, let's say I'm protecting my carrier and now you're coming to attack me, you as the red lead are going to change the scenario. In other words, the wild card, as you put it, right? You didn't use that term, but the guy who's kind of in the, the fox in the hen house, you're not going to do that on a DCA because how would that guy get out there right. and, and jump in over my carrier? Yeah. So it really, again, is scenario-based. Yes, absolutely. It's definitely scenario-based. Yeah. And then there are some, right, um, shall I say, training limitations with Fallon. Now, it's roughly... Gosh, what the valleys are like four thousand feet. The peaks are, I think, up to eight or nine, or maybe even ten. It's been a while, but we're talking about a coastal patrol, quote unquote. But now we've got all these mountains, so there are some limitations. But uh, we do our best, and uh, we also have—we didn't talk about it yet—but RTOs, right? Range training officers, and those are folks that are watching this instrumented range and providing safety oversight. Right, and that's what those, like I mentioned, the controllers that would go through the class—they mm-hmm. would be watching that instead of an actual radar feed, they'd be watching the tax displays and, and giving control based on that yeah. using standard Top Gun, you know, comm. But while Fallon is sort of the place where we all get trained, particularly as adversaries, it's not where you always operate now. Like you said earlier, you might go there and uh, help with an air wing or go to San Diego and help with a COM2X or whatever, but you might also do missions in other places. And so part of your job as a red air, correct me if I'm wrong, is to kind of ensure the training goes well as far as we don't spill out because you and your, the next day could be right next to that training airspace in your airline capacity and you don't want to have a close call. And so part of that is sort of owning, right, the training rules. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it's what we call reverse AIC. So if we don't have a a designated controller that's, you know, like you said, an RTO, somebody that's in the tax building watching the fight live and controlling it, but you have the adversary that's providing reverse control. So using my onboard sensors to say where I'm located and what I'm doing to provide the fighter that situational awareness, then it's really incumbent upon me to set the war, set the training rules. And I mean, the, technically the fighter sets it, but we make all the recommendations. Right. So again, I know this, but for the sake of those who might be unfamiliar. So you are, let's say, flying as the red lead against me, let's say on the East Coast. You are not only coming up with a plan, managing the airspace, giving me the recommendations, and now managing your presentation to give me the best training, but you're also playing AWACS or E2 Hawkeye and giving me the control that I might expect to hear? Yes, absolutely. So I'm trying to build a picture here for why we do, in fact, need professional adversaries, because that's not easy, because you're doing it backwards. Yeah, it, and it's uh, it's kind of a little bit easier with, you know, if, if you had MIDS uh, or a data link, you know, in which we did have in the F-18C in the later days of uh, the Hornet at 204, that was a really good tool to use because then you could, on your displays, see where everyone's located. You could put your cursors over a guy. You could could get the bullseye cut from him. Mm -hmm. So your comm was very tight. They also went to what they call Red Link or um, Red Net. They call it Red Net. And there are these uh, tablets that basically tap into the tax pods and it, it's essentially the same thing. It's a God's eye view of the fight. And you could color each symbol with a call sign so you knew who was who. And that was really useful. That's what they're using now in the F5s. And I think the newer F5s, I think uh, TAC Air is, is modifying some for the uh, 
for the Navy, I think it's all integrated into their aircraft instead of it being an actual tablet that we're carrying on our knee. But it's gotten a little bit easier. But yeah, early on when I was flying the A+, it was complete just Jedi, you know, like in my head, knowing where everyone was and uh, providing that calm. Yeah, well, part of those F-5s are owned and uh, upgraded by Bones, who sat in oh, that right. seat, yeah. owns this uh, Circle Air Group FBO, where our studio is located. And yeah, they've got some sort of Garmin, I guess, uh, super suite that just makes these things alter nice. Yeah. Definitely nicer than our airlines, at least. I don't know what you fly, right. my 7.5 is pretty antiquated. Yeah. But I'm glad you mentioned that because increasingly, there are more and more civilian companies, right, sure. providing radar. Tell me about that. I mean, like, how do they do that, and how good are they? And yeah, uh, you know, I will say, um, how good are they? Number one, I, I'd say they're very good, right? Because almost all of them are former Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps right. adversary aggressor pilots, so they have a ton of experience. Yeah. They were flying it professionally as active duty pilots, and then now they're doing it professionally as contractors. So they are very, very good at what they do, and that's all they do. So that's number one. I've flown with them in Guam. I've flown with them off the coast of Hawaii, off the coast of California, uh, on the East Coast, in Fallon, everywhere you can think of, flying Kafirs, Hawker Hunters, A4s, just a a myriad of platforms, and they're all quite good. The nice thing is you will always have an active duty or reserve adversary pilot who is the overall lead. So me as a VFA 204, now VFC 204 pilot, I might be designated the red lead for an event. I will brief everybody on what their roles are, including some of those contractors and the ATAC or TAC Air or whoever else. I'll brief them on what their roles are and they fill in and they provide it quite well. Okay. So in other words, if I and my three buddies are in the alley and I meet you and you've got your group of thugs behind you, you're, you're kind of leading them and they're all helping you as we do our thing and have our street fight. There. Yeah, I might, and I might send them out to be you know the high fast flyer, right? right. So they're gonna gonna go real fast. I think there there was a limitation that they weren't allowed to engage like in the visual arena, and so they were, we'd primarily use them for BVR beyond visual range engagements or high fast flyer, and then have them cut out or uh, there might be a striker that gets killed, yeah. something like that. Well, and I think it's getting more popular because it allows the military to basically say, hey, we don't want to man training equip necessarily all these adversary squadrons because we don't get a lot of return when it comes time to go off to war directly. In other words, we get it because that unit trains this unit, but that unit isn't useful to me. And so instead, like is pretty common, I guess, in the government is we'll just contract it out. Hey, this is how much money we have to spend. If you can meet that and give us this many sorties in these locations, then great. We need this kind of aircraft or at least maybe capability. We need this many flights. And so there's more and more companies that are doing that. And there's pluses and minuses to it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my first deployment when I was with VF-87, I actually cruised with VF-A-201. They were, for all intents and purposes, an adversary squadron. They were my red air for my 106 fighter debt down in Key West. So I knew a lot of those guys as a new Hornet pilot. I fought them in Key West. And they, uh, when OIF kicked off Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, we needed another Hornet squadron. And so the Navy Reserve ponied up 201 and they joined us. And so, yeah, their blue tactics might have been rusty. They might not have have flown uh, from the other end of the fight in years, but they dusted off that real quick. There was a ton of experience. I mean, you just can't, you can't discount the fact that those guys have been doing nothing but BFM every day, you know, for years, they knew how to fly that airplane. So stepping them into, you know, the blue world was 
challenging at first, but then I mean, they got on speed real quick. And it was pretty awesome. I, I flew several combat sorties with, uh, as a wingman for them, and a lot of them were you know, airline pilots. And I just got to see a different side of things. Yeah. But So I think the Navy's being a little short-sighted in saying that adversary squadrons don't buy them anything in the real world. I think they do. They just don't want to put that much money into yeah. a squadron only to use it once every 30 or 40 years on deployment, you know. Attention veterans, obtaining the right medical evidence could make a significant impact on your disability rating. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with paperwork or you may have no idea how to get started. If your disability rating is at or below 90%, allveteran.com is here to help. All Veteran is a powerful resource that can help you collect the needed medical evidence to support your service-connected disability and potentially increase your rating. Simply visit info.allveteran.com forward slash jello and fill out the form. It only takes a minute. Soon after, you'll be connected with medical specialists who have helped thousands of veterans gather the evidence needed to accurately increase their disability rating. No hassle, just a straightforward way to accurately support your VA disability rating. An increased rating may be easily within your reach thanks to this valuable resource committed to ensuring you receive the benefits you rightfully earned. Get started today by visiting info.allveteran.com forward slash J-E-L-L-O. Well, and to be fair, those are my words, not the Navy's, but I do recall discussions about that because it's just not as pay this, get that. It's pay this later on, get something else for it. And it's just, I guess, hard. I don't know. I've not uh, walked in these circles, but to either convince Congress or taxpayers or whoever is holding the purse strings or cares that, yeah, we need this capability because for all the reasons we've just discussed over the last many minutes is it makes, right? Again, I've been kind of using the two of us, but if you're doing your job well, I as a blue guy should be able to go out and do my real world tactics. Yeah, well. absolutely. Yeah, I did hear about when 201 went out. Apparently, they they were a lot of fun to have out there because they're like you said, very experienced, very senior, did well behind the boat for the most part, and uh, had some good ready room and, and uh, liberty antics as well. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, as a <laughs> as a young lieutenant junior grade, it was eye opening experience for me <laughs> seeing those guys, and and I got to fly with a lot of them yeah. at 204 yeah. later on, you know. So and they were really senior, right? Like a bunch of yeah. commanders and lieutenant commanders, and yes, only a handful of lieutenants. You know, and I don't remember there being any lieutenants. In fact, I remember there was one lieutenant, and I won't say his name, but we were in Fallon. The Secretary of the Navy came, and um, and this lieutenant stood up and said, Sir, my promotion package is sitting on your desk right now, and it's really important for me to get promoted because I don't want to be a bodo. Because, you know, as a as a lieutenant, you would be a boat officer where you'd have to ride the Liberty boats, you know, from the carrier to shore on, in port. <laughs> and uh, he said, I, I want to be a lieutenant commander, so... He ended up not going on, on that deployment, by the way, but... Related uh, to that? I think it or might just be. attitude in <laughs> I general? Think, I think it might be. I don't know his attitude in general, <laughs> oh, but... Oh, boy. All right. Well, Farley, this is fun, and uh, I've got a bunch of listener questions here I want to throw at you. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, let's move into that phase of it. Some of it we've already talked about, but these are from folks that support me and the Fighter Pilot Podcast on a website called Patreon. At any rate, they, uh, they know I'm going to sit down with you, and they get to post questions. So the first one is from Derek Burney, who says, do you find that it is important to fly a dissimilar aircraft as an adversary? We already know you did not, arguably. Another way to put it is, do you find it more difficult to train if you are flying the same aircraft type as the Top Gun students you are training? Yeah, we did touch on that a little bit. But the one thing that I will say, and I 
agree with the premise of the question, which is that it's important to have dissimilar training at some point in the student's training because as a Hornet pilot, if I look across the circle and I see another Hornet there, and maybe we're approaching a merge and I see his nose cocked up, I might know he's bled down because I know what that looks like. Or I might see the vapes coming off the wing and I know he's really struggling, you know, maybe digging in. But you might not see the exact same cues that you were used to seeing if it was a F-16 or if it was an F-5 or Kafir or something like that. So I do think it's important to have dissimilar training. I don't think flying the same platform is a detriment. I think you still can fly it in a way where the training objectives are met. But it just, like you said, requires a professional adversary to do it. So Top Gun, through its history, right, has flown BFM in F4, uh, excuse me, well, F4s too, but I'm talking about for the red side, the instructor side, A4s, F5s. And until the instructors started having their blue quals, if you will, while on the staff, it was always dissimilar. And I remember when I was on the staff in 2000, one of the points they would make was, Jello, if you and I are both in an F-18 equal airplane and we go out and I kick your butt as a Top Gun instructor, and let's say I'm a student or a fleet guy, what does that tell you? Like, you know, that's actually a really good point because now it makes the case of it's not necessarily the airplane as we all learned from Top Gun Maverick and everything else, it's the pilot. And so if you can take two basically equal airplanes, start neutral, and then at the end, one's behind the other and consistently, well, then that tells that student you have something to learn and the Top Gun instructor can hopefully teach you. Same thing for an adversary uh, instructor. All right, Joe Kunzler says, do adversary pilots study just the Russians and Chinese, or dot, dot, dot. You also threw in North Korea there, but right? A lot of countries around the world fly aircraft. Some of them we're very chummy with. Some of them we're not so uh, getting along with, and there's a lot in the middle. So how do we decide who, quote, unquote, is a threat? You know, I don't get to decide who's a threat. You know, there's definitely somebody well above my pay grade who decides. But basically, we look at the intelligence, and we look at where you know, we're most likely to run into some shooting war or some encounter. For most of my career, the Chinese invasion of Taiwan was a big stressor. A possibility. A big possibility. It still is. And so that was what a lot of what we trained to was, you know, former Soviet Union tactics that have evolved to Chinese. And to be completely honest, China has watched how we train our pilots and they are emulating it. They now have something similar to red flag. They have flankers that are painted like F-15s, just like we paint ours like flankers, you know? And so they're upping their game. And so uh, every year, usually it's around tailhook in Reno, they do a re-red or a re-blue where uh, patch wearers could go back and, and get the latest and greatest on what the tactics are. And as an adversary, we would go back and get the latest and greatest on what threats we're looking at. For a while, I know Iran was was on that list, which I always like to joke with the former Tomcat guys that Tomcat's nothing but a target now because the only country he still has them is a possible enemy. Yeah. But yeah, it, it changes, but we're always looking at what the actual threats are to our country. I'm told that in China, they call themselves red air, like we call ourselves blue air, and their quote-unquote adversaries are the blue air. Yeah. So, But when I went through Top Gun, our threat pilot and tactic instructor, uh, Crusoe was his call sign, crew. He had a picture of a Chinese high-ranking guy that had come to Fallon. I guess at some point we thought it'd be okay to let them come over and see what we're doing. And so, yeah. But part of his discussion was they're watching what we're doing and, and trying to do better. And 
yeah, they've really upped their game in the 20 years since I went to Top Gun because they've gotten away from those very scripted, as you said, former Soviet Union tactics, which we knew pretty well. And the fighter pilot wasn't given a lot of leeway to make his or her own decisions like we do in the West. And so we always thought of that as a limitation. And so as countries get away from that, it's going to make it more challenging for us to continue to hold the uh, advantage. All right, Matt McDonough. Does the current fleet of adversary aircraft adequately reflect slash mimic modern threats? And is there a money is no object option in the current inventory that would make a truly ideal adversary aircraft? I mean, it, you know, in a, in a perfect world, you would want to actually fly what your you know adversaries are flying. So, like I mentioned, Constant Peg earlier, you know, where we were flying, you know, Russian made, Chinese made fighters. That would be perfect. And I know that there have been some companies that have tried acquiring MiG-29s or Su-27s and, and, and try to use those in adversary capacity. It's never really come to fruition, but that's what I would love. I would love to get in one of those and, and uh, fly it like to the maximum of my capability. But I really do think that uh, we need to move away from you know the F-5. We need to move away from a platform that... and and. All the F-5 guys are going to hate me for this because most of them love the plane, and so I'm sure it's a great plane to fly. But we need more capabilities. You know, I've, I did red air against the F-35 in my last couple of years at 204, and um, I, can't, I can't see them. You know, I mean, it's stealth, right? You're, just, you're not supposed to see them. And I didn't have all the tools that maybe some of the newer platforms have uh, available to me to maybe give a good presentation, to maybe... Uh, actually replicate a fifth generation Chinese fighter or Russian fighter. So uh, I would like to see something more, more maybe a, a high lot Super Hornet or F-35, you know, for Navy adversary. But yeah, it, you know, he also hinted at it. it comes down to dollars and cents. You know, sometimes sometimes uh, Congress doesn't have the dollars or the cents to fund it. So <laughs> How are you spelling sense in that yeah, sentence? I'll let you decide. <laughs> That's right. I still think an F-16 is a fantastic adversary. It's a little small compared to a flanker. But it's so capable and so prolific that there's parts, there's money, there's know-how. And so I, I think that does make a great adversary. It's certainly better. I'm with you. I have a lot of friends that love the F-5. But let's face it, it's, it's short-legged. It just, with the exception of some of the stuff they're putting on it now, has never had the systems and avionics that it's always needed. And even with all that, you get it in the phone booth, as we like to call a dogfight, and it's still an F-5. Of course, if you go back in time, that's why they had the idea for the F-20. At any rate, yeah, I still think an F-16 is a great adversary. But to your point, if it penciled out, and I guess it never did on a, as far as a business plan goes, yeah, buy a bunch of those Moldovan MiG-29s, uh, rather, or get some SU-27s and, <laughs> and uh, make it work. But I guess those are difficult because parts are different on every airplane, and they're expensive, and... We're not making them here in the West, so you got to figure out a way to get all those parts. So, All right, uh, Nick Forster, do you retain your Blue Air qualifications, or because you don't get to train to them often enough, are they mothballed until you return to a fleet squadron? So you talked a little bit about 201, but talk about that like maybe for you after you went to Top Gun as a 204 pilot. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a, a great question. You know, there was a time in the reserves where the reserves actually had a reserve air wing. So it had E-2, Prowler, F-14s, F-18s. And the idea was you could take that air wing and you could stick them on a carrier and they could deploy. And I think VFA-201 was the last 
squadron to deploy on a carrier uh, in the reserve world. Time before that had, I think, been the Korean War. So it wasn't very common, uh, at least in a combat capacity. VFA 204, when we were still a VFA, still flying Hornets, we retained that strategic reserve piece. So we were that deployable squadron. Now, did we train to our blue tactics? Not as much as we should have. However, I will say, as an adversary, you're looking at it from the other side, but it's the same thing. Again, as as an adversary, I know what the fighters are going to do, and I build my presentation around that. So I'm inadvertently training myself because I know when maybe a fighter's late on timeline, and I can see that from the other side. So we were very proficient in blue tactics, air-to-air-wise. We did go bomb. We did do a lot of close air support working with JTACs, and we retained those qualifications. We did go to the carrier and, and do carrier qualifications. But then, you know, a, as it progressed later and later in my career, those opportunities became fewer and far between until finally the Navy said, no more, you're only going to do red air. You're only doing adversary. And that's when we were kind of leading up to becoming a, a VFC or flying the F-5. I remember even as a young F-18 pilot being somewhat overwhelmed by just the number of missions we have to do, both fighter and attack, and then all the special weapons, harpoon, harm, Maverick, you know, all these different things. And so to add red on top of that would have already been difficult. But then, right, in the early 2000s, our blue tactics had a huge makeover, courtesy of a friend of mine, actually, I was in flight school with and at Top Gun with. He went back and was part of that. And um, so for me, as I got more senior and more pulled in different directions, I found it hard to keep up with all those blue tactics because they were changing, they were so much more dynamic. So yeah, I can only imagine if your bread and butter is red and oh, by the way, we're supposed to still be obliged to this other thing, that that could be very challenging to do. But like you said, seeing it from the other side, almost like being an LSO kind of almost makes you a better ball flyer maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we answered Anthony Lombardo's question, is the adversary role best left to the military or is it a role that can be outsourced more to private enterprise. We've talked about the both sides of that coin, in a sense. All right, let's move on to Michael Braun. How will UASs, which is right unmanned aerial systems, change how adversaries and aggressors train our fighting forces? But before you even answer Michael's question, are UASs being used as adversaries and aggressors? Uh, no, we are not using them. We we have done some exercises with them, but usually those are in conjunction with like uh, air-to-ground missions. I'm trying yeah. to think. We we would have predators or reapers in the stack. We're doing close air support. But in an adversary role, we haven't. I could see that being a possibility, but I think a more likely scenario is what we're seeing more of now. I can't remember what they call it, but it's basically a virtual adversary where you put an adversary pilot in a simulator mm-hmm. that is then he's basically flying in a virtual world and and his his location is basically being sent digitally via data link to the fighters and so they might see something on their radar or in their systems that isn't actually there and and so i think we're going to see that more and more it's a cost savings thing it's obviously cheaper to get into a simulator than it is to get into a multi-million dollar jet and dump fuel into the exhaust but yeah i don't know that uas's are probably going to be used in a better capacity now how are we simulating UASs possibly because I know there have been instances in uh, Syria where you've got, you know, Russians that are intercepting our drones and, um, you know, dumping fuel on them and things like that. So maybe we, we will do that. Maybe we will simulate UASs. I know we've simulated 
cruise missiles. We've simulated commercial aircraft. And all you are is just a dot on the radar at that yeah. point. When I was at the weapons school, we were doing SFARPs, as you talked about earlier. And one of our missions was armed reconnaissance, where the fighters are out looking for folks doing maybe what they shouldn't be on the ground. And at the time, I was back flying the T-34C Turbo Mentor. And so we were a manned aircraft simulating a UAS, which I always like made my eyes cross. But the point was, in that scenario, you know, they're kind of looking around, let's say, Iraq or Afghanistan, is there's going to be a lot of those drones you mentioned earlier that might be there. And so we were communicating with the fighters, pretending we were UASs. It was kind of, it was weird. But yeah, and then I think the other thing you're talking about is like the live virtual construct paradigm. We've had Cubic on the show many times. We're good friends with PK and all them. And that's a big deal for them because you, you sort of, if you don't mind me calling you out, you sort of trivialize it as just being good for the cost. But it also definitely helps with the numbers that we can see as well as the size of the range, right? Because when you and I are flying up and down the different sides of the Fallon Range Training Complex, well, if they really need a certain scenario, we're going to be off somewhere else or conflicted if there's not maybe just a virtual guy there. Yeah, and you're absolutely yeah. right because, uh, you know, the F-35 and the tactics they're using requires a much greater range than we've historically used. So, honestly, the Fallon Range Training Complex is not big enough. I know that's one of their big things they're trying to do is acquire more range space. We've gone off the coast of, uh, of California, and again, you're even over the ocean, you're still constrained by jetways and uh, you know commercial traffic and so it is hard to find range space where you can get those effective ranges so yeah that's a good point all right jevin wants to know we've heard about pilots on their grad 1v1 arriving at the merge with a weapons loadout of one bullet now i don't know where jevin's getting that i remember guns only but one bullet anyway what other quote no win scenarios do you throw at your trainees during the syllabus and you've already uh, touched on this and why is this important and I, and I really I love the genesis of Jevon's question because it almost has not a nefarious element to it but I, I almost didn't ask it because it's sort of exact opposite of what we try to do and you've already painted that but I, I bring it up just to make the point again is is it's not just Farley versus Jello and you know may the best man win it's really about the training side I'm kind of I don't know where I'm going with all that, but I don't know. What would you say to Jevin here? Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree that we're not looking for no-win scenarios, right? We want there to be an actual training objective. Now, the grad 1v1 is all about fun. Let's just be honest. You have guys come from all over the country in A-10s, F-15s, F-16s, F-35s. I brought T-45s up. I was going to tell you that. And the cool thing is, as a student, you go to a merge, you don't know what you're going to encounter. And that's the greatest part about the training is you've learned how to adapt your game plan based on what you go to the merge with. So you may be expecting, you know, to come to merge with an F-16 and you've got one game plan in your head and then, oh, look, it's a T-45 and it's not just one, it's two. He's got two. What am I going to do? And you immediately have to adapt to it. So that's the fun part about 1v1. And, and obviously we're making fun of each other on the radio, you know, beforehand, afterwards. And I know, I don't know if you've mentioned this before, but... If you lose that fight, you have to shoot the high tack hand into Fallon and call final approach fix on the base radio. <laughs> and so everyone's in the bar, you know, looking up going, oh, man. There's somebody with his gear down from five miles right, out. <laughs> right. I don't think anyone really does that, though. Yeah. We, had a, we had a Raptor guy do it when oh, yeah. uh, a girl in my class beat him. So that was oh, kind of nice. cool. 
Yeah, good. Well, and the point you're making is the Grad 1v1 is an isolated event where it's sort of celebratory. It's towards the end of the syllabus. And it's just like you said, it's a memorable thing I can remember almost each of mine. I saw a T45 once when I was in an F-18B with chili Culpepper in the backseat. I've seen an F-16. I saw a tornado. I was in F-18s for both of those. And then I've been in an F-16 and met, uh, I forget what I met. But anyway, the point is, it's an interesting experience and it's very fun, celebratory. But otherwise... As you stated, there's training objectives we're looking to do, with the exception of, you mentioned it earlier, there's that last sort of big graduation exercise where it's probably not so much training objectives, but just the pure, as I imagined earlier, OCA, DCA. In other words, if I'm coming to get you, you're going to defend your country. Now, never mind that I need to learn high, fast flyers or electronic attack or groups in a certain separation from each other. You know, those are all, hey, I'm going to send you a fastball, fastball, fastball as part of it. But at the end of the syllabus, now I'm just coming to pick a fight with you. You're trying to defend the motherland and whatever you want to do works. And I'm going to do whatever I think works for me. And maybe some of those other things that we saw before, we'll see again. Exactly. Yeah, the grad strike was you know great fun for that. Yeah. Was it, though, the opposite, right? It Was it the blue was going? No, it was. But they were also attacking. They were. So, so in my class, uh, it was, it's funny. In my class, we had a blizzard come through. And so we actually never did our grad strike. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, I was kind of disappointed by it. But um, yeah, if you if you go back to the, uh, the the fleet training building now and you look at all the class pictures, there's one with one class huddled underneath the Hornet with snow everywhere. That's my class. <laughs> That's, you guys. That's my class, yeah. All right, fantastic. Our, our last Patreon listener question is from John Clark. How will the adversaries evolve in training, tactics, and aircraft as the world's air forces move to late Gen 4 and into Gen 5 and 6 technologies. I mean, it, it, just the way we always have. You know, you look at what the threat countries are doing in terms of their training, their proficiency, how they're using, how they're employing their weapon systems, and then we're going to just replicate those exactly. And like we said earlier, we already have some Air Force F-35 adversaries, so hopefully we'll have a chance to, like you did as the Red Air, you couldn't see the guy right. at all, so we'll see how that all plays out. But it's... Right, the escalation of arms. It's just going to continue. They do something, we do something. Uh, back from swords and shields and armor. Right, and exactly. Arrows <laughs> and everything else. So here we are. Yeah. So you're not in this business anymore necessarily, but from you know where you were and, and what you keep an eye on, what do you suppose is the future of Red Air? That's what we're talking about today. Well, you talked about a live virtual construct. Like I said, I think that is, at least in the immediate future, that is going to be a big thing. In the Navy, on the Navy and Marine Corps side, I do think we're going to see ourselves moving away from the F-5 into more, even F-16s, like VFC-13s flying F-16s now, which is a, a huge win for Red Air and Fallon. I think we'll see more of fourth-gen you know, fighters stepping into the adversary role. I really have a hard time thinking we're going to shrink any more than we already have. You know, when I joined the Navy, we had VFA-203, VFA-201, and those both those squadrons went away. Uh, so now we're, you know, we, we added 111. We added VFC-111 that was a debt from VFC-13 down in Key West. And I think we're in a good spot right now where we basically have, uh, on the East Coast, you have, you know, an F-5 and the fourth gen adversary. And, and now on the uh, West Coast, you've got the uh, F-16s, fourth gen, and then uh, 204 is sort of uh, an outlier down there in New Orleans. But I think we're in a good spot right now. You know, I, I wish I was behind closed doors sometimes and figuring out what we're going to do with adversary of the future. But 
it's definitely something that's near and dear to my heart, you know, doing it for 13 tell. years, yeah. you know. Yeah, I could tell. Well, and in between all those big rocks, the little rocks are the Drakens, Atax, Tac Air. I know I'm missing a whole bunch of them, but they're bringing, oh, there's one in uh, top bases, I think it is, that's bringing F-16 civilian. But, you know, Mirage F-1s, like you said, A-4 Skyhawks, L-39s, Hawker Hunters, all these different aircraft, which if nothing else, look different, fly different, but also can be available at a cost to the government but to be either blips or people who can assess how the fighters are doing, because in the end, the live part of it, still there still needs to be a big L, I propose. Yes. Well, what about the future for you? I mean, uh, you're you're out of it, so you're doing the uh, airline gig, which I hope is going well for you. It's, it's not going as well for me right now, as you can tell, but I'm hopefully going to get back to it. But you're going to just keep doing that till you hit the whatever age it is. It's 65 right now. I guess yeah. they might try to bump it to 67, but... Yeah. As of right now, yes. Um, I, you know, I upgraded to uh, the left seat uh, in my airline earlier this year. So being a captain is great. Uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, we're in negotiations. I'm trying not to let any of that bring me down. But, um, but yeah, the airline job is really good. Uh, I, like I said earlier, I spend all my time now, all my free time, writing books. And this sort of, I got into the book writing thing pretty much around COVID time frame. I took some time off from the airline, and I spent a lot of time in the in the Navy doing adversary stuff, and I just had a lot of time in hotel rooms. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book. So, and I'd had one in me for a while. You know, I've been working on it for years. So I finally finished it, and uh, I'm gonna try to sell it. So started, you know, looked up online. How do I sell a book? Mm-hmm. You need an agent, okay? So I go look for an agent. I won't bore you with all the details, but it basically took me two years to finally land my agent. And uh, he's he was my dream agent. He's a fantastic guy. He represents some of the biggest names in the business, at least for my genre. If you want to give him a shout out. To yeah. Him, uh, yeah. John Talbot. I mean, okay. he's he is an amazing agent. And um, he took my, my uh, well, I wrote a book that I sent him. And he said, this is fantastic, but it took place in Africa. He said, no one wants to read about Africa. Can it take place in the U.S.? And I said... Well, not really. I can't hunt Al-Shabaab terrorists in the United States. He's like, well, let me see what else you've written. And and I had just started writing this book, which ended up becoming Unknown Writer. And I'd written like two or three chapters, and I sent him those. And he says, this is it. When can you have this one done? So I finished it, sent it to him. He had me rewrite it, had me rewrite it again. And then we went out to sell it, uh, sold it in a four-book deal to Seven River Publishing. They really wanted... and kudos to Severn River. They really wanted to have carrier aviation and naval aviation be the focus of my books. And so that's what, if you read read my books, that's what I hope to convey is like what it's like being a Navy pilot. Um, there's obviously espionage involved. There's, you know, China is a big threat in my book, but I really want the reader to walk away knowing what it's like to be on a carrier or landing on a carrier at night or, you know, flying missions off the boat and it just, you know, one of that experience for my readers. Yeah. Well, you sent me Unknown Writer several months ago. I do, true confessions, get a lot of books. And so I put them in an order of, I don't know what, but uh, I looked at that one and I said, oh, it's got an F-35 on the cover. I guess I can start on this one. And and it before I knew it, uh, I was done because it was a page turner. And I have to tell you this, Farley, 
I just thought that maybe you were secretly spying on me because there's parts of it in San Diego, which is where I live, and you know Balboa Park and Kearney Mesa or whatever. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I can like picture all of it. And then there's part up in like San Luis Obispo, Pismo Beach. I grew up up there. And so then you're talking about San Clemente where I've flown over a dozen times and it was just weird. <laughs> now the one part for me that I didn't know real well was the F-35 and I don't want to give too much away, but I really enjoyed it because it was believable and I have, you know, five deployments and I don't know that much about the F-35, but it doesn't need to be true to be fun, right? And so, I won't, like I said, I won't talk about what happens, but but that part of it I think will make people wonder, wait a minute, could that really happen? And that's what makes a book fun. And so I really enjoyed it. Yeah, like you alluded to, the the premise is that the the Chinese figured out how to hack into the F thirty five. I'll let you give it away. I didn't yeah, that's and that's. I mean, it, it's uh, it, it that's not going to be a huge uh, shock to anybody. I mean, it was it was a concern back in twenty seventeen, and there's been some concerns. And of course, we had that uh, that Marine F thirty five that went missing not too long ago, and there was a lot of people on the Twitter sphere talking about oh what what happened you it's know it's still flying out on right, its way right exactly now. yeah some china <laughs> landed at some <laughs> airstrip somewhere right so and at tailhook uh, i ran into one of my former skippers who worked for lockheed martin and you know i was telling him about the book and and he goes eh, you know like they, they thought about this stuff right i mean it's a concern when you put a uh, a jet that is so advanced that it, it's connected to the outside world in so many ways you're just opening it up to vulnerabilities so everything in it is completely fictional I have no knowledge whatsoever. I'll just say this right now. No knowledge whatsoever this is possible, but I think it's within the realm of possibility. And um, I did have, he was a Marine F-35 pilot. was the first guy to go through Top Gun in the F-35. He read it just, and I, and I, what I wanted him to read it for was so that people could go, okay, yeah, this reads like somebody that knows what they're talking about. But like you, I've never flown the F-35, but I've just flown, flown against it. Yeah. Well, but let's take a step back because I do a little bit of writing and, some days it's easy, some days it's hard. Not everybody can write. I mean, did you have a propensity for writing in school or did you just say, this is something I wanna do and so I'm gonna just try to be good at it? And Yeah, I always, I mean, for me, a bookstore or a library is like a toy okay. store. You know, I, as a kid growing up in the summertime, I would just go to the library. And, and for me, it was, the whole world was at my fingertips, right? And even the universe, because there were books on anything that I wanted to read. And so I always spent my time in libraries. I go to a bookstore and, and still to this day, and I'll just roam the shelves. Oh, that's a good book. Let me have that. Can we have that? And so for me, uh, books are something that are near and dear to my heart. I've always wanted to write. I just never really committed myself to it. And like anything, it's an exercise. You have to practice. My first one that I wrote, I'm sure, is trash. And the, the first five I wrote are probably trash. And uh, this ended up, this was my sixth book that I actually wrote. The other ones will never see the light of day. But you just learn as you put in the reps. Well, I am eight chapters and about 52,000 words into my memoirs. So wow. can I consider you a resource? You absolutely can. Because I will be looking, I'm sure, at some point for publishing guidance and maybe uh, an agent and all that. So, all right, good. Well, appreciate that. Now, um, is there going to be a sequel or what else are you working on? I mean, you yeah. don't want to give too much away, but not everybody in there dies at the end, like Rogue One. Uh, so does uh, are we going to see some of those names again? You are, absolutely. So the main characters in the book, Colt Mother Bancroft, uh, he's a Top Gun instructor. He is the main character. And then the I'd say the secondary main character is this NCIS special agent, Emmy Punky King. And uh, both of those continue through the whole series. There's a four-book series right now. The second one is entitled Outlaw. It comes out in February. So 
if you get in on this when it comes out in November, the sequels will follow pretty quickly. Book three, I think, will come out in June of next year, and then the fourth one will come out later in 2024. So I'm working on uh, finishing that series up. I do have another series. I can't say much about it right now. Another three book series with a different publisher that I'm really excited about. So I'm working on that as well. So I have right now, I have seven books to, um, to my name, you know, that when it's all said and done, we'll be out there and hopefully there will be more coming in the future. But uh, yeah, you never know. Fantastic. I probably shouldn't even ask anymore where books can be found because I think most of them are bought on Amazon, right? So, But do you have a website you want to mention? Yeah. Uh, JackStewartBooks.com is my website. And if you go there, uh, you can look up the book and, and you can actually click on links to, to get to order it. You know, like you said, Amazon is a great place. Um, uh, Barnes & Noble, pretty much anywhere books are sold. Right now, the paperback, ebook, and audiobook are all available for pre-order comes out November 21st. I'm really excited about the which audiobook. You, which one? The next one or Unknown Rider? The Unknown Rider comes out November 21st. Oh, okay. oh yeah. I got an advanced copy. Then. Yes, you oh, got an right. advanced copy. Right. Yeah, so it, right now it's just pre-order. But uh, I just want to throw a shout out. The audiobook narrator is Ray Porter, which if anybody has read any of Jack Carr's books, like The Terminalist, he's the narrator for those, and he is fantastic. I mean, I when I found out he was going to narrate my books, I was over the moon excited. So... Uh, so if you're an audiobook listener, consider purchasing that. There you go. Fantastic. Well, keep us informed as books come, and uh, we'll throw them on our website and help promote them. You've been a guest now on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, so we want to help you uh, get where you're going with that. And and like you said, I, I didn't address it earlier, but right, you get on a layover somewhere, Orlando, what can you do? You can go to the bar, you can go to the gym, you can turn on the TV. Well, you can only do so much of any of those, in my opinion. And so having a project like a book, in my case, a podcast, uh, but also my memoirs, is good because you can be effective and, yes. and it gives you a Not project. waste your time. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, just kind of circling back real quick to the adversary talk that we had. Anything I didn't ask you that uh, maybe I should as far as whether it's the Top Gun course or anything else with your experiences? I, th- I think we covered it pretty well. well yeah, I think we did. Um, I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about the adversary mission in particular. And I know there's a lot of guys out there still doing it, and they're going to critique everything I said when they listen to this podcast. But uh, but that's okay because, you know, they're they're doing God's work out there. Yeah. Well, this is your experience and interpretation of it. And if they have a different one, well, then give me a call and you can come on and talk about it. And we should probably, I, I tried not to ask you too much about the Air Force side of things uh, because we could probably find one of those guys and, uh, or gals and they, they might do it slightly different. So, cool. Well, I can't let you go before asking you how someone came up with Farley for Jack Stewart. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, man, that's uh, Everyone asks that question, and I usually say it's going to take a whiskey or two to get me to tell that story, but uh, but I appreciate you having me on, so I'm going to go ahead and tell the story. All right. Um, so when I joined BF-87, I was the first new guy that they had had since returning home from Afghanistan. They were on the Enterprise when 9-11 happened, and so like they were on their way home, and the carrier turned around, so they were some of the first guys that dropped bombs in Afghanistan after 9-11. And so I joined the squadron. They're all combat seasoned aviators. And I came with the call sign Martha because my name's Stewart. So people would name me Martha Stewart. And they're like, we can't have a guy named Martha in this uh, in this squadron. So they were going to change my call sign to something. Didn't know what it was. Well, as a new guy, they gave me an opportunity to brief the entire squadron on some system on the Hornet. So I remember standing up in the ready room and, uh, and everyone's sitting around the table looking at me. And then they started talking to each other. And I started 
giving the brief and realized no one was listening to a word I was saying. <laughs> and so I sort of trailed off and stopped talking. And somebody goes, did I hear a niner in there? Like Tommy boy and started, you know, so they're like, oh, this started calling me Tommy boy and that kind of morphed into Chris Farley. And I was a fat man in a little coat. I mean, you could name all sorts of different things and uh, living in a van down by the river and it just sort of stuck. So sure. they just shortened it to Farley and that's, that's what I ended up with. And I just embraced it. So as you should. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's like a burr. The more you resist it, the further in it digs. And uh, so, yeah, uh, good on you. I mean, that's the point, right? I mean, it's it's a fun thing. It doesn't necessarily define us, but it kind of follows us around, so good stuff. Yeah, I'm proud of it now, so. Oh, good, good. All right, Farley, well, appreciate your time, and uh, again, I appreciate you sending me the book. I, I had to have you bring a copy in because I loaned it to a, a high school kid who's a friend of mine, and uh, he's wanting to be a pilot like you were 20 years or however long ago it's been, so hopefully he'll find value in it. But thanks for your time. Thanks for uh, helping us understand Top Gun Adversaries and, and your books today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jello. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.